And then if Mike's all set. We'll get started. So I'm just going to go over here. So um, I think Vin and Carl are out there. And uh, yes, we are. I am. How are things? How are things going, uh, how uh, how was your holiday there, Vin? Pretty good. And how was everyone's holiday out there in the audience? It's very relaxing. I'm hearing a, some feedback though. Does someone not have their headphones in? Uh, cool. So Jens had a good holiday. Yeah, Carl, are you hearing that feedback? No. Then it must be you. If you can't hear it, because then you can hear it, right? I heard it, in the, and now I don't hear it anymore. I heard it in the beginning. Interesting. Scandalous. Oh, Carl's just—I think he's just leaving. He's hiding in a in a cubby. Um, anyway, I um, I'm glad to hear people's holidays was pretty good. And um, let me know if there's ever any technical problems that you want to hear about. Um, but what we're going to do um, this week uh, is we're going to talk a little bit about uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some actual bagpipe fundamental skill building. Um, and we're going to do this at least for the next few uh, dojo universes and see. Uh, how people enjoy them. Um, and next week, we are actually going to be uh, en route to Kansas City. So we're not going to have a show next week. Um, but the week after that, we should be back to normal every week. Um, Vin, are you going to Kansas City? No, no. No? Not this year. We are We are going, and we are actually, um, we're actually really in the... Um, cool uh, position to be live streaming uh, the event with them this year. So uh, we don't, we, we sort of, we have the website technology and uh, so on and so forth. Better? Uh, it's not really better. No. <laughs> uh, you can just, yeah, Carl, just stay muted until you have stuff to talk about and then we'll be fine. I think, I think it's, it's just because he's just across the room. So uh, he gets a little bit of my, uh, a little bit of me sort of delayed. So anyway, I digress. Um, but yeah, we're going to be live streaming the Kansas City event, the Friday competitions. So the professional drumming, um, professional piping, P-Brock, gold medal, and the results. We're going to be streaming all that stuff. Uh, we're also going to be doing, I think there's some music and concert stuff happening in between the end of the events and the results as well. So we're going to be camped out in the grand ballroom there. We're going to be broadcasting all of that. If you go to dojouniversity.com, you'll see there's a winter storm link up at the top. So uh, we hope as many people as possible will sign up for that um, and check out the event. Right now, um, we're, we're on track to have about 200 people join us for that, which is, uh, is going to be pretty cool. Um, that was our goal. Our goal was to meet 200, and, and things look like they're headed in the right direction there. Um, but obviously, uh, the more the merrier, and we, we unlimited number of people can join us. Um, guest viewer asks, is it streaming only live, or will it be available as an archive? Um, we are 95% sure that um, there will be an archive available um, for um, a few weeks after the event. So if you miss some of it, you can catch up on it later. Um, or, you know, if you... Uh, um, Let's say you missed one of the events, but you want to check out who the winners were. You should theoretically be able to um, view that in the archive. Uh, we just had to switch platforms. So um, the 5% inse insecurity there would be uh, hopefully that platform still allows us to, uh, to do that. But I'm almost certain that it does. And the drumming so, too. Uh, I guess that's, that's got to be a first for a U.S. event ever, yes. I think. Yes, I think you're correct about that. Um, so the drumming as well, and um, we're we're working on being cool like the Glenfiddich was. We're working on having two camera angles. Um, oh, nice. No no promises there, but it could be could be pretty cool. So uh, I don't know. We're working on that, and uh, so that's what we're doing. Hopefully, folks will sign up. Uh, maybe um, let me grab a quick link here. Um, here you go. I'll just put a link in here. Um, 
to, to get to that page if you're interested in signing up. That'll be really cool. And uh, we'll also put stuff on Facebook and so on and so forth this week, um, letting you know how to sign up. But I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. Um, it's a very cool thing. I mean, these, I mean, for anyone out there who doesn't really know, they, the Winter Storm Contest has really grown over the last 10 years or so. I mean, when they started out, it wasn't really much of anything. I mean, they called it the U.S. Silver Medal, but it only attracted a handful of players. And, but now it's attracting players from, you know, all over the globe these days. Yeah. So it's, it's a pretty cool event. Mike, um, Mike Eagle was saying that there are 25 professional drummers signed up for the event. Really? Which is a lot. And, um, and yeah. I know there's tons of pipers and... And, and not just, you know, your average Pipers either. There's lots of high-level players. And um, I would say, and of course I'm biased because, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the event and, and uh, you know, we're involved with them now. But uh, I would say it's easily the most relevant um, piping solo competition um, in the United States proper. Um, it's just, you know, uh, and the way that it's run is really, really uh, well done. I mean, of course there are other great events too, and I don't want to suggest that you know, it's a matter of picking who's the best, but, um, you know, it's a great event. And then their workshop is second to none as well, because, um, it's literally the teachers are abundant and they're only, um, champion teachers. So, um, it's the best instruction that you can get. And anyway, uh, we're really pumped to be working with them and, uh, I don't know, super pumped to go on the trip. So Carl and myself are going to be going out there with Mark Dubois and, uh, who many of you will know from Dojo U teaching, and then uh, Eric Olette's also going to join us. So, so anyway, uh, we're hoping that you'll join us for that. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, anything else you want to add? Is it going to be a commentary-free event uh, where we watch, like Glenn Fiddick, and it just sort of streams and it's just camera, and no, no, no uh, Dojo U commentary. Right, we're not really going to be chatting about it too much. Just kind of let the music speak for itself. So. It's going to be exciting. I'm I'm super pumped about it as well, and uh, we're excited to be be going. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is definitely the pilot year, and um, our hope is that it's successful and that uh, we'll be able to do this in future years. Although we haven't discussed anything along those lines yet, but um, one of the things I'd love to do in the future is have little offshoot segments where uh, you know players could be interviewed about their performance and and to be able to get a little bit more fancy with it, but. But we're keeping it simple for this year, but um, but it should still be a cool show. So, so that's the big thing that's coming up. And uh, uh, anything else that I forgot to talk about, Carl? I don't think so. That's pretty much covers it. Uh, that's what we're we're really working on over the next uh, two weeks, and we're going to be uh, it's going to be a great show. Cool. Sounds good. Well, uh, the main topic for today um, that I wanted to talk about, and I know. Carl and I teach this a lot, and, and Vin is obviously um, really well aware of it as an or more guy. Um, we're going to talk about um, some dojo fundamentals today, and what I want to do is, I wonder if perhaps if we switched to this view, it would be better. Yeah, you can still sort of see me up there, and there's a lot of stuff here. Um, it's kind of thinking here, hold on. There we go. Yeah, we'll kind of cover that guy up. What I want to do is I want to add a new notes. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about the dojo fundamentals that we teach because, and I mean, maybe you guys could sort of back me up here when I say that um, the fundamentals that we teach at the dojo are, they're not your run of the mill. Um, they're not your run of the mill sort of piping fundamentals that you'll hear uh, from other, you know, more uh, common schools of thought. Do you guys support that thesis? Yeah, I, yeah, I, would, I would say so. I mean, uh, you know, instead, I think it's not the stuff you're going to get. It's, uh, I mean, it's fair to say that, you know, you come to Dojo, you'll encounter it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's coming down on the website, um, which is a project that I worked on a few months ago. 
Um, if you, uh, you know, you can go to that link and you can find um, how we sort of break them out. Uh, but what we do is we break bagpiping into two main fundamental groups. Um, the first group, of course, is um, uh, finger work, is group one. And then group two is uh, instrument quality. Um, Carl signed in twice over there. I don't know what's up with that. Um, now I was getting the echo again. And then, yeah, group two was uh, instrument quality. So um, these are the two main things. And I think that at the end of the day, um, there are two things that are fundamentally separate things. So your finger work doesn't have a whole lot to do with your instrument quality. I mean, uh, perhaps in some indirect ways. Bruce says audio is not working very well. Can you guys hear me okay? Or Because um, I, I can't really... Audio cutting on and off. Yeah, I think things have maybe cleared up. Yeah, for some reason there was a glitch. Um, so anyway, uh, I was just talking about the two main fundamental groups. So the two main fundamental groups are finger work and instrument quality. So if you could follow me sort of generically here, right? Um, the bagpipes, there's two main facets of what we're doing. Uh, the first thing involves the chanter. Okay, which is wiggling our fingers and making the tunes come out, right? And the second thing is that we're working to build a good sounding instrument, um, you know, in order to put that finger work onto. So uh, is everyone sort of following that, that train of thought logically? So uh, instrument quality would be stuff like bagpipe maintenance, good tonal production, and uh, good sort of tuning as well. Those are the main instrument fundamentals. And then uh, and then today we're going to talk about some of the basics of finger work fundamentals. But maybe you guys out there in the audience, you know, does that make sense to you? Um, what we're saying in regards to um, finger work fundamentals? It looks like Mark Dubois is out there. How about that? I'll invite him to come in if he wants. Good stuff. And uh, I know... Yeah, the Dojo U students are going to hear this sort of regularly. Um, and I, I think that's really important. I mean, I think it's really easy, and, uh, you know, maybe you guys can comment on this. I think it's really easy to sort of get confused, and especially if you get to a band practice and, you know, you need to blow steadily and you need to blow good tone, and then you also have to, you know, uh, have good finger work with no crossing noise and the expression. And what's really important is that we can, is for us to be able to learn to, um, uh, to categorize and to sort of prioritize the different, uh, you know, all these different fundamentals and sort of see how they're all, um, how they're all related. So um, anyway, I'll, let me fill out the, uh, I lost my mouse, but let me fill out. So under instrument quality, we have uh, bagpipe maintenance, which we'll talk about sometime in the future for sure. Um, and then once you have a, a well-maintained instrument, uh, it's time to start thinking about um, tonal quality. Okay, so once we have good maintenance, the next thing we need to focus on is getting a sweet sound out of the instrument uh, to learn to blow steadily and, and to get a great timbral quality, which is sort of a geeky word just saying. We want the bagpipe to sound as rich as we can. Okay, and then once we've learned to set up our bagpipe and achieve a good quality of tone, then we're going to start thinking seriously about tuning. So tuning the chanter and tuning the drones and so on. But then uh, today what we're going to talk about is we're going to start talking about the basics of bagpipe finger work. So um, what are some of the what are some of the finger work basics? And I know we have some Dojo U students out there. Uh, maybe uh, some of them could chime in in regards to um, you know, what, what's the absolute basic uh, finger work skill that's going to sort of um, make the foundation for the other stuff that we're doing? Is there anyone out there who... <laughs> nobody, nobody knows. And that's, that's actually quite okay, because like I said, bagpipes not, aren't usually talked about in this way. 
Um, but I see guest viewer 11 is typing something. This will give the viewers of the podcast time to think about this. Um, accuracy. Okay. So that's, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that's absolutely not, um, absolutely not what, what I'm thinking about, but that's okay. Accuracy is obviously really important. So it's a main fundamental skill. Um, that's going to be the uh, foundation for other finger work skills. And uh, what I'm going to do is I, I'm probably just going to um, give it out here unless maybe Scott, uh, and you might not know it if you're not, uh, 10 fingers. Ten fingers. That right. helps. That helps. <laughs> um, the it's related to 10 here, fingers. Uh, it is. I mean, uh, I guess that's a definite foundation that perhaps I overlooked. He's on the right uh, track. Consistent finger positioning. Okay, Scott, you're not oh, too far off there. Uh, the, the fundamental skill number one is what we call scale navigation, okay, which is basically our ability to play, I guess, I think we have nine notes. Yeah, nine notes. So we have nine notes on the scale, and scale navigation is our ability to play these nine notes and to um, successfully um, navigate in different ways between the notes. So, um, yeah, and then uh, a lot of people have said how you're holding the chanter and finger positioning. So this is all part of successful scale navigation. So, and, and when we all learn the pipes, we, we learn that skill, but I, I don't want to think about it in a linear way. That's, that's the more traditional way, which is fine. And, and we all learn that when we learn, right? Like we don't want to play like so, uh, and for those who can see me, see that I'm using the tips of my fingers, right? Now, it's true, I can navigate the scale this way. But I'm not going to be as successful navigating the scale with my fingertips as I would be with what we call the proper hand positioning, which is to use uh, the appropriate pads of your fingers. Um, right, and, and the guest, guest viewer is sort of saying that... Um, that when you're new to it, it definitely takes time to figure out how to hold the chanter properly. And uh, that's definitely something where you want to, if you're a Dojo U student, we've got, lots of, um, we've got lots of tutor resources and beginner resources to help you see. Um, but then at the end of the day, you, it would be the best case scenario would be for you to find an experienced piper or a teacher that could check in with you on your hand positioning regularly because... Um, hand positioning is an important, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, and it's easy, to, it's easy to sort of slip into comfortable things with your hands that don't necessarily translate into good scale navigation. Right. And you'll think that they're comfortable, but, um, you know, uh, but not so much. And then uh, guest viewer follows up by saying, I am talking about the transitioning to the pipes. I find it awkward once on the pipes. Yeah, and that's, that's going to be more of um, an instrument quality issue, isn't it? So... So we're going to get, uh, you know, when we talk about instrument quality fundamentals, talk about bagpipe maintenance, we'll talk about tonal quality, and then somewhere in between, there's posture, right? Posture is a big issue, and that's going to be more on the instrument side of things, and uh, we'll definitely talk about that in a future show without question, um, but, um, and that's going to be more uh, body posture and so on. So uh, and maybe if we have time at the end, we can talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, so scale navigation, uh, finger positioning is obviously um, really important. Um, but we, let's talk about scale navigation as a general skill. Okay, so at the end of the day, we have to be able to proficiently go around the scale, right, um, in, a, in a couple of different ways. Um, the first main way, uh, is what we call scale runs. So uh, the, the, at the dojo, at least for the time being, uh, let me see, what's the best way to do this? There are two main types of scale navigation. And again, this is once we've learned how to hold the chanter properly. So, uh, And we have classes at Dojo U about that, so we won't spend too much time on that. Other than to say, you know, we want to use the pads and not the fingertips of the hands. So, uh, two main types of scale navigation. Can anyone uh, identify the first 
um, easier type. This is the easiest type of scale navigation. Yeah, Steve should get this one, no problem, because he's at a lot of our classes. Up and down. Okay. Well, that's not what we call it, but you're kind of right. You're definitely sort of right. So um, especially if you're referring to uh, going up uh, one node at a time. So uh, scale runs. Good. So uh, Jenna says scale and quarter notes uh, from low G to high A. So this, these are all sort of correct. Um, now, Steve, um, arpeggios are going to be the second type, so hang on with that one. Um, the first type is what we call scale runs. Okay, and you can call them anything you want, but a scale run is basically going up or down uh, in one note increments. Vin, you're a publisher. Did I spell that right? Increments? Yes. In increments. <laughs> Um, so going up, um, going up or down in one note increments. So uh, Steve said up and down. That's sort of correct. Uh, Janice said the scale in quarter notes, which is in fact a big long scale run because we're going to go up one at a time all the way to the top, and then we're going to go down one at a time all the way to the bottom. Okay, so that's the first one, and um, one of the, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, what's a good tune that involves a scale run, uh, like a, a sort of a scale running type tune? Or, yeah, well, Steamboat's not, Steamboat's a good example of the combination of the two, um, but scale run, a good, um, a good example of a scale run is the end of uh, the first line of Scotland the Brave. Uh, and then here's a good example of a scale run. Right? So when we're, when we're like going up and down the scale and we're doing runs, um, Robin Adair is a good example, although not that many people know that tune. But Robin Adair opens like this. Right, just with a with a nice sort of cascade up the scale. I don't know, Mark or Vin. Do you know what are some good scale run tunes? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I don't. I'm, it's a very. Uh, well, the truth of the matter is, very few tunes are going to be yeah. just focused on scale runs. There's going to be a combination of scale runs and arpeggios. Um, Steve says Wild Rover. I'm not sure how familiar I am with that. Um, minstrel, first part of Minstrel Boy's got a little little that bottom hand thing in it. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. So, so scale runs is when we go up uh, or down in one note increments. Uh, the end of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Yep. Um, yeah, and Rakes is a great Rakes of uh, Mallow is a great example of arpeggios mixed with scale runs. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, you know, so in our tutor we have lots of scale run exercises. You know, this will be the most familiar if I play this. Right, just sort of working our way up and down the scale with one note increments, right? You know, sort of working up and down. Notice how there's no grace notes or anything yet. I'm just working on navigation of the scale. Okay, what is the second type? Who, actually, uh, I've already talked about it. So the second type is arpeggios, and these are much more complicated uh, than basic scale navigation because we're not going... Uh, up and down the scale in one note increments anymore. Um, whoops, I guess uh, we'll just do this. Uh, which is, you know, uh, we're not going up and down in one note increments. Instead, this is what we call combing through chords. Uh, you know, using the bagpipe scale. So uh, we don't have to worry too much about what chords are exactly. Um, if you're good with music theory, you'll know exactly what they are. Basically, chords are groups of notes that sound really good together. So, for example, 
an A, C, and E chord sounds really good when played together. Now, if I got on my guitar, I could play all three notes at the same time, but we know that's not really possible when we play bagpipes. So, uh, but we can play them next to each other and we see that they sound pleasant together. Kind of like this also sounds nice, even though it's a little bit minor key. Right? So we have these groups of notes that sound really good together. And um, arpeggios are the second type of scale navigation that deals with, with moving through these groups. Okay? Um, there's actually a third type of scale navigation uh, that we don't really talk about much at the dojo, uh, mainly because we tr just try to keep it really simple. Uh, and we, we don't, I don't feel like we really have to go into this in order to successfully teach someone. Uh, we don't talk about it that much. Um, and just for the record, because I, uh, I know that some people do learn um, the concept of a pentatonic scale as being a common way to navigate the, the pipe scale, and that's definitely true. Uh, we don't teach it that often. Uh, a pentatonic scale is a group of five notes that are commonly seen uh, you know, in groups together. It's sort of related to arpeggios, right? Which is why we don't really get that deeply into it. Um, like one, two, three, four, five, right? Right? So instead of, you know, it's adding in a couple of notes. And um, uh, if you listen to those notes, you can sort of hear, right? You can sort of hear the tune in there, right? And tunes will sometimes simply use the five notes of a pentatonic scale in order to make the tune. Um, and that's sort of interesting. And uh, so, um, and it's worth, it's worth knowing about, but we don't really talk too extensively about it um, at the dojo. So uh, for now, I'm going to erase that, but I want p anyone out there who is wondering about that, uh, that we're not ignoring it necessarily on purpose, but uh, okay, good. So um, arpeggios, using chords to navigate the scale. So um, a common one is the A, C, E chord. Uh, the G, B, and D chord is very common. Maybe I'll like separate it like that. Oh, no. I see what I did now. Um, so we have G, B, and D. We have uh, D, F, and A. We have B, D, and F. Right? And these are little groups of three notes that sound really good together. Um, and we'll often, we will often see huge segments of tunes that use arpeggios uh, to, to, to make it. Steamboat is the perfect example. Um, actually, let's start with Rakes of Mallow that Mark pointed out. That's a perfect example. So Rakes of Mallow is actually a combination of arpeggios and scale runs. So, um, and, you know, that, that tune goes like this. I'll just play the first part. Um, Okay, so, and if we take, let's take out all the grace notes, because we're not really talking about those yet, right? Grace notes, uh, which we call articulations, are a fundamental skill that happens after we've learned to basically navigate the scale. Okay, so we're not going to talk about those right now, but we can play rakes with, um, with no uh, grace notes. It would sound like this. And now we can see the first bar is just going between A and C, and that's actually a relative of um, the A, C, E chord, right? So uh, that's actually the arpeggio, and then uh, sort of the end of that phrase is the scale run. Right? Can everybody see that as being a scale run? So we have... Okay. Yeah. Uh, Rob says, second ending of Dora McLeod. Totally right, is arpeggios. Um, arpeggios are everywhere, um, especially, um, especially with little scale navigation moments, th that is a huge part of um, bagpipe music. 
Yep, summary phrase of banjo breakdown. Even the opening of Scott and the Brave, right? Scott and the Brave opens with the A-C-E arpeggio. There's a tiny B in there, but um, it's so tiny. We can see all the main notes are A-Cs and E's. Right? And then uh, the second phrase of Scott and the Brave uses uh, D's, F's, momentarily. And then I guess it switches back to the A, to the a arpeggio. Um, and of course, there's going to be lots of different combinations. Uh, Athel Highlanders Part 2. I love... Um, I love um, Steamboat is a great example of a, a big arpeggio phrase. Right? A, C's, and E's. Now a big scale run. And then uh, the ending phrase is another combination. Athol Highlanders Part 2. Yeah, Sterling Castle. Who remembers how that goes? I could probably find it. I, uh, I, don't, I don't do tune names very well. Oh, uh, yeah. So Sterling Castle is a perfect example of um, arpeggios. That's Ds, Fs, and As, right? And then a big old scale run at the end. Yes, exactly. So Sterling Castle is a, a really great example. Um, now, just in general, um, especially those who are less familiar with this, um, do the two types of scale navigation make sense to everybody out there? Like, Vin, are you following this? You're going to need to know I'm this. this. Yeah. Um, cool. Is anybody, anybody out there totally lost? I mean, maybe some of the things might seem a little weird to you, but um, hopefully otherwise we're good. Cool. So, so that's the basic idea. Um, scale navigation, we break it into two main parts. Now, um, you know, and obviously uh, w one of the big questions is, um, you know, obviously there is a counterpart here that we need to learn really early on. And that's the, the basics of rhythm. Are going to, you're going to need to know some basics of rhythm as well um, in, order to, uh, be, in order to successfully navigate the scale. Right, unless you're just playing one note, you need to have some basics of rhythm. So, so when it comes to quarter notes and eighth notes and stuff like that, um, we are going to need to know uh, some of that. But um, one of the points that we make in chapter one of our tutor, which is totally focused on scale navigation, is that uh, the main point that we make is that with scale navigation and a little bit of knowledge of rhythm, we can start to make music right away. So for beginning pipers. That's what we want to do. We want to get people making music as soon as we can. Um, and uh, that's, you know, the sooner we can start to make music, the sooner that the sooner our fundamentals can develop. I mean, Carl, we've been we've been really successful in the past couple of years uh, with this program. Um, we've set, we've had some students and uh, Carl's been doing a lot of teaching. Um, you've actually made it. You've actually made it through the tutor with several students at this point. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I've I've taken now two, at least two, um, going to be three very shortly, all the way through the tutor from, uh, you know, uh, hi, what's your name, we're going to start learning the scale today, um, all the way through to here's your first set of bagpipes, and then, you know, all the tunes in the tutor on the pipes. Um, and, it, I mean, I, I've been teaching for a number of years, especially at the beginning levels, and I've never seen a, a, a system that worked this, this fast. It's just, it's phenomenal to work with as as an instructor and for the students. I think it's, 
the best thing that I've seen. It's yeah, it works remarkably. It's so well. logical. It just it works with the students. So I think it's fantastic. It's very bizarre. Like it's bizarre, and um, you know, it's bizarre to hear someone pick up the set of pipes, and uh, you know, just starting to learn the coordination involved with the pipes and so on. But um, especially, we'll, we won't. I won't name her name, but uh, she comes in every week, and uh, she just recently got her pipes. And uh, the first couple of days, you know, she was struggling to keep the the chanter going. Uh, you know, and she was playing a few things, but then. Uh, the other day, she had come in, and, and the coordination had, had finally clicked. And here was a student who's really only been learning for a few months, really, maybe six months or something, um, playing with really solid fundamentals on the full pipes. Um, it was really remarkable. Usually, um, when people um, get going on the pipes, um, they, uh, you know, it takes them a while uh, in order to be able to play successfully with the finger work and the pipes, right? Because there's just so much going on and, um, and there's usually not that direction fundamentally that you need. So anyway, I, yeah, suppose... I think that's one of the, the strong points here is, you know, it, I feel like a lot of people learn all of the technique and then they get on the bagpipes and it's this complete relearning process. And I don't know. Yeah. I really wonder how much carries over. And with this, it's like, they pick up the pipes and they're already doing, you know, playing on the beat and, you know, starting all the technique and it's, it's well expressed and it, it seems to carry over uh, a little better. Um, okay. At least that's, that's what I've been seeing, you know, with these students and that's, it's really, it's fun. <laughs> Definitely. I, it's, it's really cool. And it just kind of, it's interesting. I, um, I've not been in the position to take, uh, really, any students recently from total beginner um, all the way through, um, you know, because it's a long process and um, it's not. I'm there. I'm extremely ADD, and I've been working on the Dojo U project. So, um, you know, but meanwhile, Carl's been teaching a lot of lessons, and he's really, really having great success. So, anyway, uh, I know we've been tooting our own horn here a little bit, but um, definitely check it out, especially if you're in the position where so many people are in, where uh, where you're starting to. Um, you know, drown is too strong a word, but you're starting to become overwhelmed with all the different things going on. Um, I'd highly recommend our tutor and our basic uh, fundamental setup because it helps really straighten things out. Uh, guest viewer, just started first set of pipes six weeks ago. I love it, but it's definitely true about starting all over again once you go to the pipes. Yeah, um, you'll be, uh, you'll get it. Uh, you know, you're, it sounds like you might still be in a stage where it's not all clicked yet. But once you get the coordination, you're, you're going to be fine. So don't, uh, I wouldn't freak out too much there about that. Um, you're going to be fine. It's kind of like riding a bike. It's really, really hard at first. And then once you get it, it's, um, you kind of wonder how it was that you didn't know how to do it before. So, so you'll, you'll definitely get it. So anyway, more about scale navigation. So we have these two main types. But um, so let me ask you this, uh, people in the audience and, you know, generally speaking, uh, Scale runs and arpeggios, they're easy to talk about, but they're difficult to execute. And what is, what is the number one? It's really the only thing. Uh, it's the only enemy that we have in scale navigation, but it's the main problem okay, that, that makes this fundamental skill challenging. Who can say what that is? Uh, Yes, Rob and Janice are saying uh, crossing noises. Yep, Darren says coordination and crossovers. Yep, and that's fine. Uh, crossovers is another way of talking about crossing noises, which is fine. Um, Mark says false notes. Yeah, that's that. For, we actually don't talk too much about false notes. We should probably talk more about it. Um, but uh, definitely, it's possible to have. Um, False notes, and you'll see in a way that uh, we sort of, when we talk about crossing noises, it sort of um, encompasses the problem of false notes a little bit. But um, but yes, so crossing noises are the number one, and then false notes can creep in. But what Mark's referring to is a lot of times, especially when you're switching hands, like if we don't return to the home position on this hand, uh, we'll end up with what's called a false note which is actually sort of related 
to one of the types of crossing noise that we're going to talk about. Okay, so who can, let's, uh, we're going to segue into the crossing noise segment here. Who out there can sort of define uh, crossing noises? All right, who can give us the definition of a crossing noise? Yes, my teacher is always on this, crossing noises, excellent. I, almost, I can almost guarantee that um, we teach crossing noises a little bit different than your teacher, unless your teacher is from the dojo school. So uh, crossing noises, guest viewer says two notes at once. Well, that's actually not possible on the bagpipes. It's not possible to play two notes at once, right? I mean, we might play two notes, you know, really close together that don't sound right, but uh, so it's not really possible to play two notes at once. Not a clean sound from one note to the next. I think that's a pretty good definition. Uh, Yent says, fingers not lifting or closing at the same time. Late or early fingering. Cool, I think all of these are pretty good answers. Transition from top hand to bottom not in sync. Uh, also pretty good. When you go from one note to another with a slight finger lazy, causing a false sound. Okay, cool. Um, I'm not sure if laziness is the cause. Maybe sometimes. Mark's going to chime in here. I think I see him. An unintended note in between the two intended notes caused by a finger issue. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, definition. Mark, Mark is obviously... Extremely experienced piper and teacher, but that's where I think I think we're all on the right track. Here's what I would say: the definition is any uh, unwanted, you know, and or accidental sound that occurs uh, between two notes, or or you could say you could also say that occurs during a note change. Okay, now, um, now all of the things that people have said here are completely legitimate concerns, right? Like it might be that we're, when we transition from top to bottom hand, we get a funky sound. Uh, it, might be, uh, it might be lazy fingerness issues. Uh, yeah, and we might have a lazy finger or a finger that's not really doing what we're telling it to do. Um, and Ken says later early fingering. I think that's definitely um, you know, an issue. Fingers not lifting, closing. That's good. Two notes at once. I kind of, I think I know what you mean there. And then not a clean sound from one note to the next. I think that's a great definition. Um, for me, it's the issue of control. So we have to teach our fingers. We have to, uh, we have to control them, and we have to teach them to do exactly what we intend them to do. So um, I like unwanted or accidental sounds, right? So sounds that we're not intending to make are occurring between notes. Okay, and so any of those, does everyone see how any of those common issues boil down to that same definition? Is we had an unwanted or accidental sound. Let me know that you're clear on that definition and then we'll, we'll move on. Cool. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the definition is fine. If it's if your definition's slightly different, that's fine. But um, I'm going to go with this. So we want to control what's happening between notes. So um, now the the next thing is, and what I think is really cool about our system is, uh, we have identified that there are three and only three. So it's it seems like a lot, but at the same time, it's just um, it's just three things. There are three things that cause. A crossing noise okay and we have to be careful of the three different pitfalls but other than that we're going to be able to master our, our scale navigation all right so uh, maybe Carl maybe you could come on and help me out with this one because I know you know these um, maybe you could go over the first type of crossing noise all right um, let's see first type of crossing noise uh, I think we in order, we call it the uh, low hand crossing noise. So when you're going from 
one note to another, you get a low hand note in between. No, that's um, not it. That's not your first hand. That's not the first one. No. 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 Then I don't remember which one's first. Okay, you'll you'll remember when I mention it. So the first main Lift type. Drop. Okay, that's what is, I'm talking uh, about. And that's what I call it. I mean, you can you can call it what you like, but the first main type is caused by, um, you know, fingers lifting and dropping uh, at inappropriate times. All right, so which uh, creates a low hand note, <laughs> right? Which sometimes <laughs> sometimes creates a low hand note, but not always, right? So, um, I, actually, almost always. So there you go, Carl. So Carl just has a different name for it. So um, lift drop. Uh, basically, when we do a note change, we need to make sure that the fingers involved in the note that we're going to uh, lift up before the fingers left over from the note that we're coming from need to be dropped. So I'll give you an example because that's kind of tricky. Let's go from uh, low A to C. Okay, we're going to go from low A to C. And the notes that are, the two fingers that are involved in the C, they need to come up, right, in order to make the C. Uh, and then this pinky is ultimately going to have to come down. Now, in the perfect world, we want this to happen simultaneously. Right? Um, but uh, what happens if we accidentally put this finger down before these guys come up? We're going to have an unwanted crossing noise, uh, which is the low G sound, before the C comes up. Right? So that's an example of a lift drop. By the way, the same thing could be true going down. So uh, if we go from C to low A, the low A is the finger that needs to come up before these guys come down. And I say before, um, we don't want it to be too much before. We want to sort of ultimately make it happen essentially at the exact same moment. But if these guys go down, before that guy comes up, we're going to have that crossing noise. You can probably hear that crossing noise. The other extremely common, uh, the other extremely common problem is when we go from D to E, right? If these fingers drop down before the new fingers come up, then we have a problem. And vice versa is also true. If these fingers come down before the D finger come, comes up, we're going to have that unwanted sound in between the notes. Okay, is everyone, is everyone following me? This, this is the most commonly talked about type of crossing noise. Everybody, everybody understand that? So that's the lift drop, and uh, that is when uh, Okay, and so yeah, so I just typed that in there. So when the fingers from the current note drop before the fingers of the next note are lifted, that's what causes a lift drop crossing noise. You can get them, uh, you can get them in all sorts of places. Like a common one is when you're going from E to high A. If this drops before the high A fingers come up, then you're going to have a crossing noise, um, and um, it's all kind of interesting. I think for me, what's interesting is we talk about the lift drop crossing noise a lot. Uh, there are different names for it. Most people just call this the crossing noise. But there are actually two other types, and the second type is way more common than the first. Absolutely. Especially learning um, the arpeggios, I find this one to be uh, very common. Right. And that's going to be the run up or run down crossing noise. Yeah, I, I call them, again, that's a, you know, he calls it a run-up. Um, I, I call it a roll, uh, which we're going to go with, uh, the rolling crossing noise, okay? Sounds almost but pleasant, I, rolling crossing noise. Yes, it does seem almost pleasant. Bruce says, oh yeah, so ways to avoid the lift-drop problem. Well, uh, practice uh, and, and learning and uh, doing lots of scale-run exercises. Um, are 
uh, you know, and other exercises are the way to work with that. Um, and then, yeah, Carl says, remember to lift and then drop. So, so if you have, um, for example, when we have an arpeggio exercise is a great exercise for all types of crossing noises, but lift drop, you know, is uh, especially one of them. Right, so there's lots of crossing noises that can be caused by lift drop. So, um, and, it's, so yes. and I would say this is this is strictly a muscle sort of motor thing. It's not necessarily an, an, an auditory thing. So it's about really getting the muscle memory and the fingers working the way you need them to work. You know, right? So you have to you have to train your you have to train your fingers and do lots and lots of practice um, to get clean note changes. So I would start with, you know, arpeggio exercises are the best for this. And just do it really slow at first. Right? Uh, and then... I would go out on a limb and say a good way to, to diagnose and figure out how you're doing crossing noise is to um, set up a, a, an exercise where you're working on um, you know, par parts of the arpeggio and intentionally play a crossing noise and then alternate between intentionally playing one and then not playing one, just so you can see how what it is the mechanics of doing it wrong and the mechanics of doing it right. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of uh, you know lots of different innovative ways. At the end of the day, right? The the unfortunate truth is the best way uh, to to avoid the problem of a crossing noise is to learn with uh, with extreme you know caution. And be extremely cautious at the scale navigation phase, which unfortunately, if, if any of us have been playing pipes for any period of time, is long gone, right? We learned that skill a long, long time ago. So, um, so in order to fix the problem, it's going to take a lot of diligence and a really careful ear because you might not be hearing some of the problems that are there, okay? So um, anyway, um, that's just a – and I think that that's strategy is going to be true of all crossing noises. Um, you know, I like to, I like to take real bagpipe tunes and take them little piece by little piece, um, and, and examine all the fundamental stuff, which would obviously include this. Okay. So we'll move on to, uh, what Carl calls the run up or run down. And I call a rolling crossing noise. Carl, maybe you can explain this one. I think, and, uh, maybe you could agree or disagree. I think this is way more common than a lift drop crossing noise. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't have my chain around me, so you'll have to demonstrate. But um, a, a run-up or run-down or uh, what's the words that you use? Just lost it. Rolling. Rolling, Rolling. Um, is where, for example, going from A to C, uh, you get the unintended note in between, so the B in this case. Um, and this can, again, happen pretty much anywhere on the channer. Um, but it's an unintended note between the one that you're on and the one that you're going to instead of <laughs> are you with me here yeah i can i can hear you maybe it was my my computer that's been freezing but uh, i'm not sure yeah can anyone else hear me can you hear me out there it's coming through fine for me okay cool it must have just been my computer my my apologies there okay yeah, um, I would say A to C is not nearly as common as low G to B, I think, is maybe the most commonly heard um, rolling crossing noise. Where we're hearing a little bit of low A on the way to the note, right? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's the most common one. Although, um, I think the most common... Uh, rolling crossing noise that we hear, especially in R and more, is when we're going from low G to any high hand note. It's one of the hidden uh, rolling crossing noises. So when we go to E, so uh, when we're going from low G to any of these high hand notes, we hear that little blech kind of sound, which is actually a roll, which is our pinky is coming up before the rest or uh, yeah, before the rest of the notes. Or the pinky is coming down late, 
when we go from F to low G. Um, and then uh, Mark says that happens in grips, and you're totally right, right? So here's a classic grip. And uh, if you're anything like me, you've heard that grip 10,000 times. There's really one main fundamental problem, which is that uh, in going down to the low G to start the grip, we have a roll, right, uh, which we're hearing the low A first. And then when we finish the grip, we're rolling back up to the E. Right? And it's just sloppy because, not because our grip is bad, but because our scale navigation is fundamentally flawed there. Uh, Jens says that happens going from, um, I wouldn't say E to F, right? It's actually impossible to have a crossing noise from E to F. It's one of those bonuses, but from E to high G for sure. So yeah, that's the rolling crossing noise, which is actually much simpler than, um, you know, much simpler in concept uh, and way, you hear it way more often. I think, you know, one of the reasons we don't learn to avoid this is it's not really taught that often that I'm aware of, you know. Um, They're also hard to hear when you're in, you know, in a, in a circle, in a band circle, unless you're really, really listening closely. And so it may get lost in the in the general scheme of things of a band practice or as a, in a group of pipers, you know, something you really have to sort of focus on to really diagnose. Yes. Um, I don't have a great definition. It's, it's caused by fingers rolling to a note instead of getting there in sync. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, that's the main thing. And, and so you, you have to be careful of that rolling crossing noise. Um, Good. Uh, and again, as far as improving that, I would say the same sort of things are in place. You know, you, you got to keep an ear out for it. And, you know, you've got to um, sort of zone in. So um, let's, we're running out of time. The last type of crossing noise is actually, um, and I told Eric Olette he invented this and he had no memory of it. Um, but Eric Olette was talking about these. Oh, uh, invented crossing ago. noise. It's something. Well, um, it's a very definite type of crossing noise. Um, and it's it's sort of a more advanced type, but it's really relevant. And we call these phantom uh, crossing noises. Okay? And a phantom crossing noise is actually caused, it's actually the opposite of lift drop uh, and makes gooey ghost sounds. All right, and my, my definitions are definitely getting more lax as we go. But the phantom crossing noise um, is the opposite of lift drop. So lift drop is when um, the fingers from the current note drop before the fingers of the next note are lifted. But the phantom crossing noise is caused when the opposite is true. So let's say we're going from C to E, right? If we lift uh, the E finger up like this, and then we drop this, and if there's too much of a difference in between, we get a weird gooey, timbral sound that's kind of gross. So a lot of times we, we avoid the lift drop um, by lifting the finger up first and then dropping. But if we don't do this efficiently enough, uh, we get uh, bad sounds. And they're hard to hear on the chanter, but when you get on the pipes, um, they're very evident. But, you know, if I go like, if I play E... Even on the chanter, you can hear that timbral change, can't you? Right, if I'm moving these fingers underneath the E. And that's what happens with phantom crossing noises. And on the pipes, that sounds especially muddy. And when we, you know, that's another type of crossing noise to watch out for, um, especially as you become more and more experienced on the pipes. Right, you could say, well... Geez, um, everything is fun seems fundamentally correct, but it just sounds a little bit gooey. Um, and a lot of times uh, it's caused by the phantom crossing noise, which you also have to watch out for. Um, that doesn't merit too much discussion, though, because it is sort of the third and most advanced. It's the least likely that that's the type you'll have to worry about for now. So, 
Good. Are there any questions, comments, and, and concerns? Um, we're going to, at least in the next few weeks, we're going to shift to a more educational dojo universe um, just because it's sort of the off-season. It's not a whole lot to talk about uh, happening in the world. Um, so we're going to talk about some dojo fundamentals. Are there any questions or comments from uh, participants or from um, instructor types? Certainly a very popular subject. Quite an audience out there today. So Yeah, it's very it's it's something that people really about. struggle with. And again, I feel like if we objectively break it down, we're gonna have a lot more chance to uh, understand and then fix the problem. Yeah. I, I mean the the mechanics too are, are some of the easiest things to fix, you know, when you're dealing with your, your own piping. I think just the motor issues and fingering and they're the easiest things to sort of work on and correct. Um, you know, before you get into aspects of music and instrument quality, really. Definitely, definitely. Um, guest viewer says, isn't it possible to have a crossing noise of some sort on burls? The answer is oh, yeah. no. Uh, there's no. really not. <laughs> it's not. It's not actually possible because we're just dealing with uh, low A's and low G's. I mean, there are many problems, well, the, but they're not I, really... I would, I would disagree with that, actually. I would say that there's a possibility of the B finger slipping slightly and causing That's a little a, sort yeah. of sort of a little sort of unwanted sort of blur right there as the as the your bro finger yeah. is moving the b finger shifts slightly and causes like a little it's just sort of like a, another gross sound as if you were i don't know what you would if you put that in a rolling category or not it could be a rolling one yeah i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't call that a crossing noise i would just call that a whole coverage issue which is like a whole that's a whole different ball game and um, you know so but whatever that's obviously there's obviously a problem there uh, that's that's whole coverage though, so uh, you know developing you know and working on crossing noises does assume that we are able to successfully cover the holes, which when you play a burl, is not always a safe assumption to make, especially if it's like cold out or if we're new to burls. So uh, Steve says it all comes down to mechanics and, and and practice and work really you know either way. Uh, yes, yeah, so it is po definitely lots of problems that can happen with burls. I wouldn't say that's crossing noise related. Um, Steve says, let the people know good ways to communicate with you. Well, um, we're always available at info at dojouniversity.com. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and then, you know, also the, uh, sales at pipersdojo.com. It all kind of goes to the same place. So, um, and then, uh, you can email us there and all of that information is found on our website as well. So, uh, yeah, and our phone number is 518-452-4988. Uh, rhythmic fingerwork is an amazing tool, and they definitely go into some of the crossing noises. I don't believe Jim differentiates between the lift drop and the rolling crossing noise, although I cannot remember. I have to, I have to research it, and um, regardless, it's a really, really great resource, which we sell at pipersdojo.com. Bruce says, does the height of the fingers affect the lift drop? Uh, I tend to play with high lift fingering. Yes, that makes sense. So you, you play with a high finger height. Uh, high finger height is okay, but the higher the finger height is, the more difficult it will be to control the lift and the drop. So I recommend about an inch, finger height of about an inch. Although when I play, sometimes especially uh, when a note is longer or something, uh, I'll definitely go beyond an inch. But yeah, you want to keep an eye on your finger height. If you play a C that looks like this, right, with the middle finger, which I don't, mine is sort of a little bit more. But if your C is, if the two fingers are of different height, you're likely to have a crossing noise problem when you drop those fingers because they're coming from different heights. So yeah, Mark says keep the fingers low. I'm not necessarily a believer in keeping them super low, and that's just me personally. Um, but you want to keep them uniform finger height. And then I would definitely agree with Mark that we don't want them to go too high. Um, because the higher they are off the chanter, the more difficult it will be to control, and the longer it will take to open and close notes. Yeah, some people will, have an easier time of doing that, too. Like, you know, people have to have different size hands, you know. People with larger fingers are going to have an easier time lifting their fingers higher versus someone with smaller fingers who might benefit from holding them a little closer. I think it's important to find your comfort level there. Absolutely. Okay. 
Yep, the dexterity issue. Cool. Well, let's wrap it up there. And um, I think uh, I think that was kind of a cool session. And that's our sort of that's our philosophy, our objective view on the idea of scale navigation. And we'll do some other fundamental topics. Uh, as we move forward, although we won't have Dojo Universe next week because uh, we'll be in transit to Kansas City. So, all right, everybody, you're quite welcome. And uh, there's plenty, plenty more of this type of stuff uh, if you sign up for a Dojo University membership. So you'll check out dojouniversity.com for that. Alrighty. All right, see you later, everybody. <laughs>